0: Well, one of the commentators in Leviticus said the most feared chapter is 15. I'm going to go with 12, and that's where we're turning to tonight. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 12. Originally, there's a lot in common between 12 and 15, and I was going to preach them together. But as I was working through it, there's definitely two separate themes, and I don't like having a two-idea sermon. And these are just areas that we need to talk about. Some of you, maybe young people, you know, you're here and your bodies are changing and you're saying, Pastor Andrew, do we, do we really have to talk about this tonight? And I'll just say God, is, God has made your bodies and they're good and he's not afraid to talk about them and so we shouldn't either. Uh, there's a way that we can do it that's respectful, um, but we can still use real terms and not be ashamed about the way that God has made us. So let us go to God's word Leviticus chapter 12. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If a woman conceives and bears a male child, then she shall be unclean seven days. As at the time of her menstruation, she shall be unclean. And on the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. Then she shall continue for thirty three days in the blood of her purifying. She shall not touch anything holy. "...nor come into the sanctuary until the days of her purification are completed. But if she bears a female child, then she shall be unclean two weeks, as in her menstruation, and she shall continue in the blood of her purifying for sixty-six days. And when the days of her purifying are completed, whether for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb a year old for a burnt offering." and a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. And he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her. Then she shall be clean from the flow of her blood. This is the law for her who bears a child, either male or female. And if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. And the priests shall make atonement for her and she shall be clean. Please pray with me. Father, as we come tonight, remind us that all of your scripture is profitable. You have decreed that this be written and that we be here tonight to hear it. And so would we come humbly, would we come soberly, uh, wanting to hear and to know and by your Spirit's grace to be changed to be more like Christ. For we pray this in his name. Amen. Well, will begin with the sermon point tonight, right up front. Very simple. It is to... The women of the church, though, as I said before, we're all part of the body of Christ, and if it's to one part, we all benefit. Daughters of Abraham, you honor God when you are fruitful. Sisters in Christ, you have a high calling as you follow Christ. You are are to be fruitful, to bear and nurture life, and whether that is physical life, as you bear children and raise them in the Lord, or it is spiritual life, as you work side by side your brothers and sisters in Christ. Daughters of Abraham... You honor God when you are fruitful. Now kids, this is going to include some things, the sermon, that may be difficult for you to understand. And so let me just say simply what this is all about. Maybe a little bit, a little bit simpler. God has made men and women just as important as each other. And there are many ways that men and women are the same. There are also ways that they are different. And one of the ways that, that girls are different, and one of, the ways, one of the ways that they bring glory to God is that when they grow up and get married, they have babies. By the way, my sister, my, sister, my daughter Rachel is into this already. She, uh, she wants to be a wife and a mommy. She just asks, Mommy, when can I be a wife so I can have babies? Um, so I just all you eligible young men out there, watch out. Rachel is sizing you up. Um, but there are a lot of questions that you can ask about this text and let's just address the elephant in the room. That a lot of a lot of a lot of people have, question they have. You know, ladies, this, this passage tells you how you can honor God. But but the question today really is does God honor women? Women are to honor God, but the question we often ask for our society is, does God honor women? And many today see the Bible as sexist, as oppressive towards women. Uh, The Old Testament, they would say, is full of misogyny. There there are very difficult texts. Some would call them the texts of terror. From a modern standpoint, even a charitable reading makes women seem to be second-class citizens. Or if you're very cynical, you could say, well, they're barely more than cattle. Relegated to a life as baby-making machines. I don't know if you've heard that type of talk before. People would say, Moses demeans women. The Apostle Paul is certainly no better. The Bible bars women from positions of influence and leadership and relegates them to a life of homemaking that would make a 1950s housewife cringe. Really, what the Bible is, is just a compilation of patriarchal privilege where men use their power to oppress women. And in fact, who are you, Pastor Andrew, as a man? To speak on matters of women's issues in childbirth when you have no such experience. You've probably heard that that type of argument out there. And maybe young people, um, if you haven't, you will certainly when you go to college. One of the reasons I'm I'm preaching on this, I've heard of several women who are now Christians who left and went to college and became uh, feminists and not in any sort of of biblical way because these, these passages, these texts were not preached on. There were no answers. And so when they heard these ideas, they were attracted. Well, as we've learned in Sunday school, some in secular society just see the idea of God as a made-up power play. The societal norms and the boundaries that God's given us, conveniently written by men, of course, they'd say, are ways to enforce the patriarchy. Well, to which we can all agree, if there is no God. But since God does exist, and he did create each one of us beautifully and glorious. That means that our life does have direction and meaning. And God has something to say about it. Now, there are hard questions with the Old Testament. I'm not trying to belittle anyone who has good and honest questions about how does this work? It does this passage unfairly single out women because they bear children? Why the long days of purification? Is, is this a timeout? Is this a, a punishment? Why is it double for girls? Does that mean that women are worth somehow less? Uh, These are fair questions and ones that we we will consider. But I start by addressing the idea of of patriarchy that's out there because we all have assumptions. And this text will bring that out. And as you examine this text and what scripture has to say about childbearing in general, it's good for you to ask yourself, am I coming to God's word from a position of faith or unbelief? Do I believe on the one hand that God created me and has the right to define who I am? Or do I believe and act more like someone who views that I am who I am? I am self-defined, and I sit in judgment on the text. Now, we all bring commitments and assumptions informed by family, society, culture, experience. Consider the sermon title. I don't know if you read it, but Making Sense of Maternity Leave. Making Sense of Maternity Leave. I submit to you that 50 years ago, certainly 100 years ago, that title would have been uncomfortable, startling, maybe even nonsensical. Maternity leave? What's that? Why are we even talking about that? Now, I I don't say that because I I think maternity leave is wrong. I think... perhaps done correctly with proper attitudes. It could be a good thing for family and society. But my point is that 50 years ago, this sermon at Faith Church would cause that congregation to raise their eyebrows or at least scratch their heads. Why is the pastor preaching this? Because we all bring commitments and assumptions to God's word. Now, I said I find this perhaps the most feared passage in Leviticus. Would it surprise you to know that this passage would be one of the least feared one of the least controversial passages, of the time that Moses wrote. One commentator noted that all of the ancient cultures of that time viewed childbirth as something that rendered the mother ceremonially unclean, unfit for religious ceremonies. Other religious texts wouldn't have the exact, but some similar instructions. Now, of course, God can do what he wants and he could say, don't do that, do this. But in a section in Leviticus that we're at that deals with ceremony and purity. Israel would be scratching their heads if the Lord didn't address this issue. Now, clearly, these laws are not enforced today. They're fulfilled in Jesus. But I want you to understand that what you see as strange seemed perfectly normal to Israel at the time. That doesn't mean that there's no right and wrong and anything goes. But what it does tell you and me is that we should approach God's word humbly and examine our beliefs and preferences in real time. Ask, is Is this coming from, when I'm feeling my gut reaction here, is this coming from a biblical instinct and a faithful application of this truth? Or am I being influenced by beliefs and practices of my culture and tradition that might actually even contradict God's word? And we all need to do that and approach with an attitude of humility. So let's examine some of the questions in this text. Why is a mother unclean after childbirth? And this is another one of those where we say, we just don't know. This passage is even more difficult because it doesn't give a reason why. It's almost like it is so obvious to the people that Moses didn't explain it. And so we're just on the outside looking in and saying, but, but why so the most obvious things you know, you, you, don't, you don't deal with. Them. So it leads us to make an educated guess. And here's one possible reason. The first you know, childbirth is physically messy. There's a lot going on, and afterwards a woman's body is healing and resetting with all that entailed. It's physically messy. And since the idea of being fit for God's presence, being clean, is illustrated by bodily cleanliness, it's possible that a woman would be viewed as being unfit for God's presence just simply because of how her body is healing until her time of purification had stopped. Remember also that Often in that time, it says in Leviticus, the blood is the life. Blood represents life. And so it's possible, it may be seen, that a woman whose who's discharge included blood was seen as losing life and therefore in a state of less than whole. It's possible. I, I do want to emphasize that this uncleanness is not caused by sin or any kind of moral impurity. The sacrifice in the ESV translation is called a sin offering that's that's given, but it's a very broad term. Some of the commentators call it a purification offering. Sometimes it is for sin and when it is, it will say this is offered as a sin offering and the priest will make atonement for him and he will be forgiven. Saying that, yes, sin has been covered, but other times with ceremonial impurity will say this is offered as a sin offering or a purification offering and the priest will make atonement for him or in this case her and he or she will be cleansed. See, the difference there. You know, a woman postpartum, and who was unclean, is no more sinning than a bereaved widower who, who touches the body of his dead wife while he mourns, and is ceremonial unclean. So why the length? Why, why seven days, uh, and then 33 more days to make it 44 boys, and twice that, you know, 14 and 66 to make 84 girls? There could be a couple things going on here from a physical standpoint. Forty days after pregnancy is at least in the ballpark time when when a woman's discharge will often finish. So Elizabeth tells me that it's right at six weeks that you get your first postpartum checkup, which is, is kind of in that time frame. So, so this could um, this is also you will, we'll see in uh, chapter 15. Next week, where the seven days appears again, and this is the approximate time for a woman's menstrual cycle. So, so this could be roughly corresponding with the physical uncleanliness that we mentioned before. However, there's another possible explanation, a symbolic one that's either you know, contrasting or maybe even going on at the same time. There's obvious symbolic significance in the numbers seven and 40. And there are some links perhaps to going back to Genesis and creation. And we know that God created the world in seven days, uh, 40 days is the number of where the flood God destroyed the world in the decreation and then remade it again. Uh, one scholar argues that these links with these numbers is showing that uh, they viewed the Israel viewed that women were in a sense imitating God in childbirth as they were bringing new life into the world. I don't know if that interpretation is true. I won't know until heaven, but uh, I do find it attractive and compelling. And if that was the case, it would be a very positive way of viewing a woman's body and childbirth. Now, you might say, but even if that is the case, what's what's it with the difference of time between boys and girls? Why does a woman need a longer break for a girl than for a boy In, in a day where society tends to see the sexes as interchangeable or mostly interchangeable? Again, this seems seems a bit unfair. Yeah, there's a lot we don't know. What I can say is that difference does not mean less than. Some people will also point to later in Leviticus chapter 22, where a woman is valued according to the temple standard for a vow as less than a man. And say, well, see, that means she's not as important as a man. Well, in that case, the vow is most likely based on the amount of physical work a person can produce. Since an older man is valued less than an able-bodied woman. So I, I don't think that necessarily means that a difference means inferiority or less than. The best explanation that I have heard is that the woman's period of purification is doubled for the girl because one day she too is expected to bear children and she too will go through this time of purification. And so twice the time of purification looks forward to the day when the infant daughter will be a mother, a possibility Well, this is all good and well, but but some would say, well, you haven't really answered the question, does God honor women? And that's because this passage really doesn't tell you, it doesn't give you enough information. But my goal is to show that this text doesn't dishonor women because a lot of people will come to this and go away with a very negative view. And rather, I would say, it's best to answer that from the rest of scripture. And what we see is that in the rest of Scripture, overwhelmingly speaks of women being incredibly valuable, including when they bear children. And it shows that women honor God when they bear children. And what Scripture shows is that childbearing, from the beginning, is a blessing and not a curse. We keep going back to that foundational passage in Genesis 1 27. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God, male, he created them, male and female, he created them showing that they are equal in value. And then God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply. And certainly men and women have different roles where women take the lion's share of the childbearing. And that's the plan for humanity. And you see throughout scripture, we we read in Psalm today, speaking about the women bearing fruit, in the houses of Israel, you see in Genesis 24:60 where Rebecca is about to go off to marry Isaac and Rebecca's family blesses her 24:60 and says to her, our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gates of those who hate them. It's very, very positive. And then in Ruth, when Ruth is is wed to Boaz, Ruth 13, 4, 13 through 15. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. And the people said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age, for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to you. This is a very positive way about viewing childbirth and, and a woman's bodies. Now, Now, there are plenty of feminists today. I won't say all because there are many different varieties of of feminism. But there are many feminists today who effectively hate their own bodies. They see childbearing as an inconvenience or even a curse or even oppression.
1: Their goal is to be like men as much as possible, maybe better.
0: In her book, The Genesis of Gender, philosopher Abigail Favale points out that today, women's health issues treats a woman's healthy body as a problem to be fixed, a disease to be cured. Birth control usually involves disrupting a woman's healthy pre- reproductive sex cycle and system in very unhealthy ways. Second wake feminist Simone de Beauvoir says basically that women are slaves to men as long as they're having children. And in her mind, loosely paraphrasing, she says humans must not just live according to their nature, the basic functions, uh, they must transcend it to do something more. And listen to the way she contrasts what women do and what, say, in the 1950s, men did. To give birth and to breastfeed are not activities, but natural functions. In other words, not not worthy activities. They do not involve a project, which is why the women find no motivation there to claim a higher meaning for her existence. She passively submits to her biological destiny. In other words, having children, not very noteworthy. On the other hand, man's case, she says, is radically different. He does not provide for the group in the way the worker bees do, by a simple vital process, but rather by acts that transcend his animal condition. And she says, then, that women must recognize their plight and free themselves from their chains of reproductivity. That's not a picture that scripture presents about women and childbearing. Childbearing is is a blessing to be celebrated. It's assumed you will get married and you'll have kids. Now, our society has tried to decouple sex from procreation. And so the default setting is that men and women are sterile. Instead, what scripture says is that men and women are are normally fertile and they are when they are married to express their loves in the bond of intimacy that will normally produce the fruit of children we see even Jesus dignifying this by his childbirth. We sang it tonight. The babe, the son of Mary. He, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, but, but it went through a natural childbirth. Childbirth is a blessing. Uh, it's, it's a privilege as well as an obligation. Now, this doesn't mean that married couples must have as many children as possible. There's a, a place to steward and plan before the Lord. But it is a blessing, and not a curse. And I will say to you, women and, and girls, your body is not defective. Your ability to bear children is a gift from God. Now, I recognize there's sacrifices that you make by doing this. I remember when I was a teenager and I was learning the way of things, and mom kind of sat me down and said, Andrew, women were were a little complicated. And we'll talk about this more next week, but you do not have to be ashamed of your body or the way it responds to prepare itself for children or to repair itself after children. This will involve sacrifice. Now, this is one of the areas that we as a society have failed, and we as a church need to make sure that, that we join with the women in sacrifice, especially the men and husbands. I was listening to a podcast by, by Secular Economist uh, with Elizabeth on the way home last night. We were out on errand and was talking about how single parents' houses, mainly mothers, have skyrocketed from, I believe, 5% in the 1960s to 40% now and present, 70% in the black community. Now, this is all supposed to be freedom for women. This is a more liberated existence, but instead it is terrible for them and their children. And it gives men an excuse not to be men. And so, boys, I'm going to tell you this now. One of the most cowardly things... That you can do is to father a child and then abandon it with its mother. To be a man, you must grow and mature in Christ. You must be able to become a significant provider for you and your family. And above all, when you ask for a woman's hand in marriage, you commit to her and your children. And if you walk away, you're not just sinning against God and them. You're not a man in the first place. You're still a boy. So we do need to recognize that women make sacrifices because of the role God's given them and to care for them. And even here in this passage, in this law, I believe there's hints about caring and honoring for women right after childbirth. We talk about, is this, is this demeaning for the women to stay at home? I think that most women of the time were grateful for these laws. I suspect most women would like time to recover. Uh, after pregnancy, to have mom come over for a week or two to be at home, and especially in the days before modern feminine hygiene products, do you really want to be out in public all day long? I I even believe here that in this law, in that time, there's a practical care that God demonstrates for these women who bear children. Now, I understand there are women out there who are genuinely suspicious of men, and, and there's ways that we can say, yes, women have been taken advantage of and oppressed. And and they say, you know, when the Bible says that women are to be honored, they say, well, it's just written that way. It's not actually true. That's a long conversation. Elizabeth and I love having those conversations. Love to have people over and talk about them and and hash all those things out and, and kind of, you know, more than just the sound bites. But even though women have been taken advantage of, that doesn't change the fact that God's design for women are to be nurturers and life givers. And so I say to my sisters, don't believe the lie that you should try to be like a man, only better. I was interesting, I was listening to a separate two interviews with secular feminists. They were opposing the trans movement and so receiving a lot of flack for it. Both of them were successful. They had good careers. Both of them had kids. Neither one would give that up for anything in the world, their children. And One was actually surprised. He said, I was, I was working a great job. I was good at what I was doing. I, I became pregnant and I was told this is just something you're going to get over. You're going to put them in daycare and you are going to go back to your your job. And she said, Oof. I had my first child and I said, Nope, not going back, had another one. This is the way it is for many women. There is a lie among many strands of feminism that it's a career is what fills, fulfills you. You can take it from the men. There, there are good things that come with a job or a career, but it makes a terrible idol. My fear is there is a lot of girls out there who are told these lies and and so are dissatisfied with their bodies and miss the joy and blessing of bearing children. Because women, you, you honor God when you bear children. Now I know that for some women this is hard to hear. Say, Pastor Andrew, I want to have children, but I can't. I'm not married, and I want to be. Or we're infertile. And thank you very much for reminding me. Many of you know that Elizabeth and I had 10 years where we wanted very badly to have children. The Lord said no. It wasn't through until he gave us our beautiful children through embryo adoption. That was, it was painful. That was agonizing. And I, I understand you hear the teaching on motherhood and, and, and the church is, is rightly elevating motherhood because the world is chopping it down. And, but you ask, what about me? What am I supposed to do? Wasn't that the cry of the Old Testament? Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel and Hannah and then coming into the New Testament Elizabeth. Rachel, give me children or I die. And there is an understandable sadness that the Lord does not grant you children. But you are not alone or without a purpose. You see, Jesus honors all daughters of Abraham who follow him. I want you to see, Jesus treats women very differently. I want you to see how incredible this is. You know, at, at the time that Jesus came, and the Bible does teach them that many women are equal and to be valued, but you might have heard the well-known prayer, right? God, I thank you that I am not like the Gentile, the tax collector, and a woman. That was a common Jewish prayer taught, or prayed by some of the men. And even today, you might ask, were women less than men? In many cultures, yes, even today, Here's a quote from Diane Landsberg. She's done some work with Westminster. The seminary I was, was educated. She says this. Girls and women around the world face violence every day. More girls have been killed in the last 50 years because they are girls than men were killed in all the battles of the 21st century. Females have food withheld, medicines withheld, education withheld. They are mutilated, disfigured, killed, and trafficked. Hudson Taylor going back a little bit, when he went over to China, I believe in the 1800s, wrote back to some of his people, when he saw the abuses, English women don't know how good they have it. Now, That's not to excuse the way English women in the 1800s might have been mistreated, but what he's saying is, compared to the ways that women are treated in a a Chinese society that doesn't have the influence of Christ, there was a night and day difference. And that's because of who Jesus was. You think about ways, the way our Lord talked to women. He talked to them, for starters. He allowed them to learn. They sat at his feet and he taught them. They provided for his ministry in Luke 8. Women were the first to witness his resurrection and share the good news. I find it touching the passage that we read earlier in Luke. Jesus <coughs> was teaching in the synagogue and he spies this woman who's hunched over and defigured, bound this way for 18 years and and he calls her over and he, he heals her, and the synagogue leaders protest, not not because she's a woman in this case, but because it's the Sabbath. And what's Jesus' response? Well, you know, she's done her time, she's served the patriarchy and borne many good sons. No. Do you not know that this woman is a daughter of Abraham? She, you know, bound for 18 years, should be loosed on the Sabbath day? How beautiful. A daughter of Abraham. Jesus here is not referring to her childbearing capacity. That's beside the point. Regardless of that, she's made in the image of God. And she's an heir of Abraham. The the promise of salvation is hers. So I'll say to all my sisters, to all women, you identify not first as a childbearer, but a daughter of Abraham who's united to Christ. And if that is you, then then your your calling transcends bearing children. Jesus becomes your identity and everything else is second rank. You can be fruitful in other ways, too. You see how women are in ministry with Jesus. You see this in the early church. The names of Dorcas, Priscilla, Phoebe. Paul, in his letters, lists many women that he would use names like fellow laborers in the gospel. She has worked hard in the gospel. Now, yes, there are differences where it, when it comes to men leading in the home and the church, but there are incredible and numerous opportunities. And sure, there's the ones that are stereotypical, the nursery and taking care of children and, and, and the food and the hospitality, and those are wonderful. And if that's where your niche is, amen, go for it. But, but there are other areas, too, that God has given you as a woman. There's, there's music, there's financial stewardship, there's evangelism, child evangelism fellowship, there's, there's counseling. There are teaching contexts outside the church. This sermon draws somewhat from two w- books who are written by women who have PhDs. If you are a woman, there is work for you to do to serve Jesus. I said in the beginning we need to evaluate our traditions and our, our gut feelings. I would have a different thing to say for a progressive church. But for a conservative church, one that we, we know what the Bible teaches and, and we're zealous to, to hold those boundaries. We should ask, well, do we have traditions that unnecessarily limit what women can do or dishonor them as image bearers in Christ? And Pastor Tom Church, now retired, and he was at Belmar, he said, look, the Lord gives straight lines, of, of, but but we can we shouldn't continue to draw extra lines just to be careful. We just hold that line. And you know, I, I wish I had heard this 15 years ago because after our Infertility, and when we found this out, Elizabeth entered into a time of depression. After all, all she ever wanted to be was a wife and a mom. And for that long time, God said no. And it wasn't that the church was giving us purposefully negative messages, and there were people who were very helpful. It was just that the church was so busy elevating motherhood and marking off what women shouldn't do that... We hadn't developed, and the church didn't give us a a godly vision, a positive vision of what godly childness looks like for a woman in the meantime. Elizabeth was depressed, and I didn't know how to care for my wife. And I'll say with regret, there are times where we were aimless, and we drifted in that situation. We wasted time. We lost opportunities, because we lost this vision image-bearers of Christ who have a task to do. Now, ultimately, we have to repent before the Lord, before his actions It's nobody else, but oh, how helpful it would have been for someone would come along, they did weep with us, but also to say, I know you're hurting, and I'm praying for you, but you have a purpose greater than childbearing. Jesus calls you to be devoted to him now. That's not just for women, that's for everyone, but I'll say for, for single women, for women who are past childbearing age serve jesus now with the gifts that you have sisters i know there's many women out there or young girls you're waiting for a godly man and we seem to be short on them boys take note i want to encourage you this is not a new problem that is encouraging the early church was predominantly female There's. Uh, Many more women came to Christ probably because they they were treated as equals. And the gospel showed that beautifully, wonderful, strong sexual boundaries that were strong and and protective for women and and allowed families to flourish. And then and then instead of killing their babies, as often Roman families would, they would uh, nurture them and also take in babies that were exposed to die, be eaten by the animals or raised as sex slaves. And so the the distribution was about two thirds female to one third male. Well, you can see that you're not going to have you're going to have a lot of women who don't have husbands, and that was a challenge. But you know what? Those women were part of a church that turned the Roman Empire on its head in just a few centuries. And I can tell you, it wasn't just the men who were working. You have a place and a purpose now. So daughters of Abraham, you honor God when you are fruitful. Please pray with me. Father, you've given each one of us callings wherever it is. Our bodies matter. They are beautiful. Sometimes it seems frustrating to us when our plans are not your plans, when our bodies don't seem to work the way we want to. But we know that you are good, and we thank you for the different ways that you have made us and the beauty of of both marriage and also single people who devote themselves to the Lord. And so can we serve you with contentment, with gratitude, with urgency? Because we all know we are sons and daughters of Abraham, united to Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.